Hello, I'm Amy Day. You're listening to Mend, Life at the Seams. This is where we meet inside the broken places. That intersection of what is lacking and what we have to give. Inside this space, we gather with ordinary people, parents, poets, permaculturists, pot farmers, travelers, teachers, technopreneurs, artists, and activists. People from all walks of life who are taking root at the margins, who are daring to do the brave and audacious work of mending what is broken in this world. Those who have chosen to step into the gap, so to speak, to leverage whatever skills and vision they possess to chart a new way forward for the betterment of us all. And those who are calling us to do the same. This might just be your clarion call to take the thread that you carry, the one that's a piece of a much larger tapestry and to weave a different story than the one you've been handed. So welcome to Mend. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, pardon me. This, uh, as I'm recording this intro, I've got just a little bit of a seasonal cold going. So uh, you get me and my and my congestion on this little bit of uh, of diatribe here. So thanks for your patience. Um, today I wanted to just sit with the question: What is the role of the artist within society? I've been having a lot of conversations lately to this effect. Um, one of the things that I do is volunteer on the fundraising board at my daughter's school to help ensure that the gardening, music, and visual art programs and the hardworking teachers who provide and share these gifts can continue to be funded. Um, it speaks deeply to what we value as a culture, what we give time, money, energy, and attention to, and what we choose to divest from as well. And we know that training in these areas, right, enhances other areas of learning, brain function and productivity. We know that handing a child a lump of clay makes them better problem solvers and instills innate confidence in their own ability to fashion things of their own imagining and their own design. We know that music teaches cultural appreciation, um, improves hand-eye coordination, concentration, and an ability to work collaboratively. We know that gardening builds up immunity, right? You got to get a certain amount of dirt in that body. <laughs> uh, teaches us about the natural systems in which we exist and instills a deep reverence for the earth. And yet, we consistently devalue these things. So this week, I sat down with my beloved friend, plus teacher, mentor, and poet, Therese Fitzmorris, to talk about placing value on art within the context of the larger world. Therese is the co-founder of the much-beloved 10-years-strong Humboldt Poetry Show, what she describes as Poetry Church, uh, which is an open mic experience that happens the first Thursday of each month in our local area and is open to all. So if you're interested in that, just please make sure to check the show notes for more details. I'll leave a link there. She self-published a volume of her poetry as well as produced an album of her work in collaboration with other local artists and musicians. Um, which I'm happy to say I am one of those featured on her beautiful spoken word album. Um, again, more on that later. You can check the show notes and make sure to listen to the end uh, so you can hear one of those pieces. 
In addition to her work as a poet and performer, Therese has served the community for 16 years as a professional educator, as high school English teacher, preschool director, and parent educator. After studying at University of San Francisco Center for Teaching and Social Justice, Therese earned a teaching credential at Humboldt State University. She has since closely studied the explosion of mindfulness research and its relevant application to education, family life, and art. Teresa and I sat down to talk about writing as a spiritual practice and assigning value to those things in our life and world that don't necessarily bring status or wealth along with them. We talked about the practice that she regularly engages in to clarify her own path and priorities in this life and the role of art and the artist within the health and life of a community as well. As all things she touches, this conversation is full of warmth and insight, and it gave me the necessary impetus to value and reclaim the less tangible resources that I possess within my own world. And so, of course, I hope for you it will do the same. As you know, it is our habit here at MEN to include a piece of spoken word or poetry at the end of these talks. So today, I want to invite you to stick around, if you can, until the end where Therese shares a recording of her work. And I get the fun task of singing along in the background as well. It's just another beautiful example of what can transpire, excuse me, transpire when we endeavor to live deliberately. When we choose to prioritize that which nourishes us and feeds us and fulfills us and invite others to do the same. There's no limit to the value and the beauty that we can create inside that space. Well, I am very happy, very grateful to be interviewing my friend today, uh, the lovely Therese Fitzmorris. Hello. Um, and I just wanted to, I wanted to, Therese, if it's okay with you, I wanted to begin actually by telling the story of how we met. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've, I've told, I've relayed this information to you many times, but I think it's, especially in this day and age where women are kind of, I don't know, at least you know, in our generation, we were taught to kind of compete with one another and to have this kind of catty one-upmanship relationship. I, I think there's some, some, some juice in the telling of our, our, our personal meeting, um, if that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I have memory. I met Therese um, right when my daughter was about 18 months old, and I was at that point where I needed a break. Um, I needed a little bit of assistance. I needed some free space during my day. And I happened to see a flyer for a woman that was offering a Montessori um, preschool program out of her home. Um, and so I said, yeah, I, I need to look into that. So I called her up um, and she and Teresa said, she'll, 18 months is a little young, but yeah, sure. Why don't you bring her by and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, and it ended up that, you know, I, I guess I had a, a well-behaved enough 18 month old <laughs> that, that Therese felt like she would, she would work with the rest of the, the sweet little group she had assembled. And, um, and so I just remember, I remember my initial feelings meeting you and there was this dual thing where I was so grateful that my little one was getting the experience and the, the beautiful environment that you had set up. Because it was just, you know, it was this lovely, you know, the whole environment, right, you know, is in that, very much in that Montessori mode where it was like, it's self-guided play, right? And they're allowed to just kind of explore and find things as they will. And it's not about like, okay, now stop what you're doing and we're going to do this. You know, you had just set the whole, your home up so beautifully 
that the whole thing just had this, you know, enchantment wonderland feel to it. And everywhere they went, they were learning something and playing and engaging. Um, and I was so grateful for that. But there was also this part of me, you know, as a new mother, um, I, I really remember feeling um, there was this insecure part of me that was like, I don't know if I like this lady. <laughs> I think it, and I think back on it now and I, and I realized it was meeting you and the skills that you had built around parenting and mothering. And, um, you know, were so, they were beyond the skills that I had built and it brought up so many insecurities for me. And I remember for a long time, it was like, okay, well, you know, I'll go and I'll drop my kid off and that'll be that, but we're not going to be friends, she and I, you know, because I don't know if I'm, I'm going to get on the same page as this lady and I'm not sure I, I like her. And I remember, I, I don't know what was it, what it was in my head, but at a certain point, I remember having this moment where it was like, what, what are you doing? You know, what, what are you doing? Like you are, choosing to be in opposition to this person who's bringing a lot of blessings and a lot of beauty to your world and that of your child. And what if you could rearrange your thinking in such a way that this person who you perceive is better than you in all of these ways, and who I still in many ways, I look up and I'm like, look at all the cool stuff Teresa's doing. I'm not there yet, but maybe I will be. And I, and, and I, I th and there was this switch that happened in my brain that was like, what if you chose to say thank you? What if you chose to embrace this person and rather than see them as something that you have to compete with, you chose to see that the universe has granted you a free mentorship, if you will. You know, here's this woman who is farther along the path than you as far as parenting and, um, you know, creating art in this world and doing all these wonderful things. What if you chose to engage and take her on into your world and into your heart as like, an older sister, you know, a free gift from the universe, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that that shift has occurred because, you know, here we are years later and um, yeah, my whole family has benefited and my, my life and my own heart and mind have benefited by having you in my world. Um, and I don't know how that sits with you. I'd love to hear your reaction to that. I know we've talked about it a little <laughs> before, but just that, you know, the, the, yeah, I'd love to hear how that sits with you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, my first sense is I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that's a common experience of new mothers, right? And where there is this enormous new responsibility in your life. And it's easy to project onto someone else that, you know, they've got it down or they, they know how to do this better than I and really, when you pull back the veil, like that projection that you had at that moment, you know, you were looking at me as a parent of two older children, you know, so when Sailor was 18 months, Thomas was what, five, six. So my oldest son, you know, I was much further into that journey of parenting and so much changes so radically at those young years or can. Um, and for me, when Thomas was 18 months old, I was very isolated. Um, I had taken a year off of well, a little over a year from my job as a high school English teacher. And I was getting prepared to go back to work full time. And I was terrified. You know, I was terrified of this idea of having to um, 
leave him home alone with my husband. My husband had chosen to take a year off to be with him. And, you know, I was, I was really worried about that and if that was right. And I had all of these doubts and questions. And I remember, you know, um, there were mothers in my world who I felt like were somehow doing it better and managing things better. Um, but really, when you pulled back the veil, it was like underneath, you know, there, there is this struggle that everyone has to engage with personally that is a um, very difficult transition from going to, to becoming a new parent. Right, so that was sort of my first reaction that like I just happened to be the person that you projected that on, you know. And then the other part of it was, you know, just thinking about that cultural idea of like the competitiveness. And I remember when I was I was first parenting that like a lot of my projections came up most strongly around things I had doubts around. You know, like I was choosing to co-sleep with my son and so you know, like I had projections and judgments around people who who could get their kids to sleep through the night, you know, and like somehow thought they were better than me and like, you know, didn't want to be around them because they were taking the easy way out of giving their child formula before bed so they could sleep them. And I didn't want it to be a temptation or, you know, so it, it, it felt like that to some degree that there was this competition of like what was the right way or the best way. And you know, at some point I became more aware of that and really tried to do the internal work of understanding how complex and difficult it was. And like you did as well, like asking the question, what if, what if I, instead of judged that choice, you know, um, could be an ally or support to that mother and helping them make the choice that was right for them and their family and knowing that it could be very different than the choice that was right for me and my family. So I wanted to to segue, however loosely here, to one thing I think that we we both have in common is you know we have this long history from from our youth right of having art be a big part of our lives and a huge value that we hold. And I know for you, you are you know what I would describe as a a prolific writer and poet and performer. I mean, you have books um, that you've published, you have, you know, at least one, you know, audio recording of your spoken word stuff that I know of. I'm sure there's more material out there that I'm not privy to quite yet. Um, And I know that similar to myself, you, you know, harbored a dream for quite a while of kind of this, this vision of, of, I guess, making it big, right. You know, of kind of seeing your work and your words and even maybe even your, your personage, right. Kind of elevated to the larger stage, right. Um, you know, being kind of your, um, generations, Jack Kerouac or Allen Ginsberg, right. And really, um, quote unquote, making something of that offering and of that gift that you possess. And I know that over time, um, that shifted. Can you speak a little bit to kind of what the evolution of your, your creative dreams have looked like over time? Sure. You know, at a, a young age, you know, I did write. I have poems I wrote in first grade. Um, so as long as I've been able to write, I have been writing, um, creatively, but, you know, it really wasn't until like post-college that I really took those ideas seriously. And when I look back, it's really interesting because I was always gravitated to be around musicians and be around other artists who were sharing their work in, you know, local community venues. 
um, and perhaps having those aspirations of taking their music on the road or, or not, but um, very much engaging publicly with their art. And I kept mine really relatively private and didn't share it except with maybe a few roommates, maybe a classmate here or there. Um, and the quality of it wasn't honestly very good, but I was really attracted to this notion of art as a social change agent. Um, and so when I first was teaching high school, I had brought a group of students to the youth national poetry slam called Brave New Voices. And, you know, at that point, I was kind of in that behind the scene kind of person of like, I believe in people following their creative dreams and that that could change our culture and change individuals. And, you know, I was kind of behind them being their coach, literally, you know, encouraging them to step on stage and share their voice. And they turned it back on me and were like, well, why aren't you stepping on this stage? Like, you need to get up here, too. Um, and so I was really literally called to the stage without asking to be called and incredibly nervous and really doubted the value of what I had to offer. But because I had these seven young people, you know, um, looking, looking to me to live the very lessons I was teaching them, that I did step into that space and I did start sharing my work and performing. And it was really uncomfortable for me to step into that public space, but there was some internal push to do it. And I think a lot of the hesitation came from this sense of, if it's not going to be good enough to be recognized and acknowledged on a national level or as a career, then it's just not valuable at all. And so I wasn't conscious of that at the time, but as I wrote more, that theme kept coming back up to me of like, what is the value of this? Why am I doing this? Why am I honoring time and space? It's clearly not making me money, um, but it was transforming me. And I started realizing that the personal benefit that I was getting from writing and reflecting on what I wrote was the most powerful thing I could ask for. And that regardless if it ever had any monetary value, like it became more and more clear what uh, transformative personal value it had. And there was one point, you know, after I sort of went through the incubation of parenting and all the challenges that that, that came with it and the sort of complexity of, you know, sort of losing one identity and having to recreate a new one. Um, you know, there was a point again where I was like, well, maybe this is it. Maybe I should commit to writing and seeing what it's like to put it out there. And I spent, you know, I say a year, but really it was only probably six or seven months, like putting writing as my first priority. But through that process, I became really clear that like what I want to do is to write and to share it with my local community. And that I don't, it doesn't feel healthy for me personally to put much time and energy into trying to project that my voice into a broader national stage at this point in my life. Like maybe at another point in my life, I may make a different decision. But right now, the amount of time and energy that takes felt like it was taking away from my life instead of adding value to it. And it feels very powerful and very rewarding and meaningful to just share it at our local 
venue once a month with a siren song or to share it in my writing group or to share it with um, a group of people at the fellowship where I work. And, and that feels really, really fulfilling and just sort of where I'm at right now. And can you speak a little bit more just to, um, well, I'd love to hear just a little bit more just to, you know, the uninitiated listener, right? You know, what is that monthly offering like? Because you have been doing this, offering this monthly open mic, um, you know, holding space basically for people to come up and, you know, be brave <laughs> just as you were mm-hmm. um, and share their hearts and share their artistry and um, hold that space collectively for one another mm-hmm. over 10 years, right? And I think a lot of people over the course of 10 years, right, especially living in the era which we do where everyone's like, you know, well, how can you monetize this? And how can you scale this? And how can you, right, you know, like, how can you market this? How can you make money off this? Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, might have eventually just, you know, thrown away, you know, it's like, okay, well, that was nice while it lasted, but we're going to have to get down to business and find something that, you know, is more practical or brings more, you know, financial value or whatever. Can you just speak to me about kind of the, the evolution of that monthly open mic and, and the vision that you held hold and have held for it and how, what you've witnessed transpire as far as the value that you bring to people's lives inside of that space? Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a few different threads there. I'll start with like just a little background on what that event is you know it started out um as a collaboration between myself and Vanessa Verdiak she was um I met her she was one of the students on the national poetry slam team that I was coaching you know so we very much grew up as poets and performers together even though I was you know 10 years older than her and you know, formally her mentor at the beginning, um, but that really quickly changed to just a, a pure collaborative um, relationship in which we started this monthly event. And, um, you know, I honestly, she could probably tell more details than I, but, you know, it, it was really her vision at first. You know, we, we did a couple isolated sort of readings and open mics and she really wanted to make it a regular event, if my memory serves me correctly. And we were, at the time, holding it in the Accident Lab in Eureka, which was just a, a at that point, it was like a new space, um, art gallery that was run by Phyllis and Matthew, um, two local artists and entrepreneurs who were just really welcoming and really creative themselves. And they were bringing in really great art and just created a space that was thriving with, you know, all kinds of people coming in um, to appreciate different kinds of art. So they had events there. And so we started holding this open mic in the corner there. And, you know, in the beginning, we didn't like have folding chairs. There was like maybe five or six chairs and people sitting on the floor. And we started having like a live band and we called it the accident lab because you could have this live band, um, you know, improvise along with you if you wanted, or you could just read your poem. And we also had a connection with the national poetry scene. And so um, at periodically we would have poetry slams, which are competitions in which, you know, local poets could qualify to go to these national competitions. And, you know, it it went pretty well there for several years. And the accident gallery decided to close. And that just coincided when my daughter was born. And so it was a great opportunity for me 
to kind of take a year off from that community organizing. But when they, um, Phyllis and Matthew opened a new space in Eureka called the Siren Song, which is really more of a, a tavern um, that isn't, you know, an art gallery, but it still is a venue space. Um, you know, I don't know if Phyllis asked Vanessa or Vanessa asked Phyllis, but they, you know, Vanessa wanted to start the event going again. And so if you track back to the beginnings of it, it's been about 13 or 14 years with that one year of hiatus in the middle there. And as far as, you know, like it began, you know, pretty small with small audiences. And now it's kind of has a life of its own where um, Vanessa still puts a lot of energy into, you know, promoting and advertising the event to get new people in the door. But most people I talk to say they come because of word of mouth, because somebody's told them that they've been there. You know, we get crowds from like, you know, 60 to 100 people every month. And we usually have you know, anywhere from 15 to 22, 23 poets sign up. So we don't always, we're not always able to accommodate everybody. Um, but it, it's a space which really, to me, like the, the best thing I equate it to is like I call it poetry church. You know, it's, it's a space in which people come to listen, people come to speak, they come to share, they come to create community and you know, in that space, I have seen all kinds of really beautiful transformations happen. You know, we do charge $5 at the door, so there is some small revenue, but all that money is put back into the community of um, creating projects, whether it's it usually goes to supporting the future poet who is releasing an album or a book, or it goes to the live artist to help pay for their supplies, or um, Eileen McGee for many, many years has recorded the and put it up on PDS and so we help like pay for the cost and sustain that you know so all the money is really not going to individuals it's just going back to creating art and um, and there hasn't been any desire on my part ever to monetize that and actually like I would rather not make money from it because then it's really clear to me that I'm going there because of all of these other values of um, you know, sort of the social capital that comes out of it and the creative capital and the friendships and community that is built there. Outside of that, you know, economic system that we're so heavily conditioned to believe is, you know, the, the centerpiece of value. Mm. Oh. Yeah, yeah, no, I like what you say about the, um, yeah, um, about poetry church. Just, I, I, it makes me, I'm just thinking of like, you know, what, what that church function, especially since there's so many of us who've been turned off to church in this day and age, you know, and, and we're looking for a place where we can find that same sense of the sacred and that same sense of connection, um, where we're all kind of breathing a common breath and, and speaking a somewhat common vernacular and meeting each other in that, um, not trans, maybe transcendent way is the word that I want to say, um, so we just, I have it written down. I wanted to ask you just about this intersection of spiritual practice and writing. And I think, you know, what you said just already is like, you know, you've created this space or co-created um, this space that, you know, even though it's, you know, it's a tavern and it's really, it's a fun night, right? And I mean, you sit down and you have your, your cocktail and you cheer other poets and you hear some really like, you know, um, some very real stuff come, you know, from the stage. 
um, there's still this felt sense of the sacred. And I know for you that spiritual spirituality and spiritual practice are very, very much linked up to this practice of the written word. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I, you know, as I mentioned before, like I have been writing for a really long time, but it really wasn't until when my daughter was born, you know, I, I had had such a difficult time that first year when my son was born, when my daughter was born, I um, had this really clear sense of like, I don't want to go back to that dark, isolated place. I want to do this parenting of this infant differently than, than how I had parented my, my first child. Um, mainly in that, like, I wanted to feel like I had a spiritual tribe around me to, to help hold those challenges, feel more confident. Um, and I didn't know quite what that looked like. I just knew what it didn't look like. And so I had this idea of like having, you know, like a mom's group of some sort that was focused around the teachings of yoga, the spiritual teachings of yoga. But I had no, you know, I had been practicing yoga, um, you know, in the studio once a week with you know, mainly doing asana practice, but grateful for the, the actual little bits of, of spiritual teaching that were woven into that asana practice as well. And so I reached out to a, a mentor of mine, Karen Harris, who I knew as the minister from the Unitarian Fellowship. Um, and I knew she was, you know, well-versed and studied in the yogic world and asked her if she knew anybody who might be able to teach this class with me and that I would be happy to facilitate the sort of get people together and get the space and all the logistics but like there was somebody with sort of spiritual credentials that could step into that space you know and I didn't imagine that she would say yes I, I wasn't even bold enough to ask her as I had such respect for her and knew she was quite busy um, but she was so um, drawn to that idea and inspired by it that she, I remember her answer. She said, she said, you know, I can't imagine anything else in the world that I would say yes to right now because I'm, my schedule is so incredibly full, but I absolutely want to do this with you. And I was like, wow. Oh my gosh. And then the next thing she said was, but I don't want to teach the class. Like what I want to do is I want to mentor you in stepping into the role of spiritual leadership. And that, that moment was like kind of ground shaking for me. I was like, what? A spiritual leader? What's that? Like, I'm not a spiritual leader. That's you. Like, I'm not that. Like, I'm a teacher. You know, I'm a writer. I'm not a spiritual leader. I've never been a part of a religious community. I've never studied religion. Like, and, and through that relationship and that mentorship that she offered me over the next course of really, it became a couple of years and still continues today. She helped me begin to name the things that I did in my life that were spiritual practices. And it seems so funny that it took someone else to reflect back to me that writing really was a spiritual practice for me. But when I really clearly named it as that, my relationship with it changed. Um, it became much easier for me to like honor and value time to commit to it because it was no longer something that I was doing as like a self-indulgence or something I was doing as a possible career path. It was something I was doing to ground myself in living with integrity and 
um, nurturing my relationships and being the best mother that I could be and being present for the challenges and the difficulties that arise. And so, um, you know, I started to think about that and really, you know, shift my thinking of like, oh, I'm not going to host a poetry night. I'm going to host poetry church to give people a place to have a, a voice and to have spiritual connection. Um, and then, you know, when I sat down and write, you know, whenever I do that, I don't have like a discipline practice that happens at a particular time of day on a regular way. But when I do do it, I do think of it as this practice of opening up. So whatever it is inside of me that needs to be given voice or whatever messages I, I'm longing for, things I, I want to look at or wake up to or learn from. And so the writing is sort of the first step, but then going to going back to it and taking it to another level of sharing it in some form really brings me to that contemplative place of like, what does that really mean? Like, how do I live that? Um, like, what is that? What is that poem teaching me as opposed to what was I trying to teach someone else when I wrote it? So it, was, it really shift my, shifted my relationship quite a bit, how I approached writing and how I valued it. I'm, I'm just struck by this thread of mentorship, you know, how that kind of, that theme keeps weaving itself throughout this conversation and how, you know, it, to my mind, you came as, you know, this, this gift of the universe, right? That's kind of the unasked for mentor to my life. And, you know, you reaching out to Karen as, you know, a distant teacher who you didn't really, you know, intend to step into that intimate space of mentorship with. And yet that's exactly what you received. Um, and I just, and I, and I'm, I'm just kind of loving this, this idea of mentorship and, and teaching specifically, because I know that that is a great gift that you possess is your ability to, to share, um, things that exist just in the land of the conceptual and to make them deeply approachable and accessible to, to both, you know, uh, grown up minds, but, um, very much so younger minds as well. Um, as I have witnessed multiple times with my own child and, and other people's children that have been blessed to have you in their world. Um, do you feel a sense of that when you're, when you're in that teaching role? I always feel like there's, you know, we talk about callings, right? And we talk about kind of stepping into the work that we're called. You know, we talk about stepping in as, as parents, as partners, as, you know, community members, as, as whatever it is, that, you know, but do you feel that sense of almost, and it's going to sound so grandiose, but like anointing, if you will, <laughs> like, like you are, are doing what, fulfilling a huge part of your own purpose when you step into that mentorship or teaching role? Yeah, I do. And, you know, like, and I do think they're very different roles, you know, like I, I don't teach as much as I used to, you know, I spent many years of my life where I was teaching groups of people. Um, and it's a very different relationship when you have a group of, you know, 25 high school kids in front of you in a classroom or, you know, just last Sunday, I taught a class at the fellowship where I had 16 kindergarten through second graders um, and five parents in the room. And, and that's a very different kind of dynamic um, where I feel like my role there is creating an experience and opportunities for people to engage with whatever material we're, we're exploring. 
Um, and it's very different than than the role of like being in that mentorship, which is often more in like a one-on-one or, or perhaps a small group setting, but mostly one-on-one. And, um, you know, I, there was a point where, you know, when I was contemplating writing as a career full-time, you know, where I really recognized that I missed teaching, that there was something about that direct act of being in a group a room with a group full of people and having that direct relationship um, of engaging with them and creating this experience for them and getting that immediate feedback that like I had offered something that a group of people just received. Um, Whereas writing is this very, um, you know, even though I may write and off, you know, offer my writing out to the world, like it's not as immediate or direct. And there's this huge unknown of like, if it's landing anywhere, if it's having an influence, it may, but I often don't see that. Um, And so like, it was so clear to me that like, I thrive when I have opportunities to teach and mentor people. And that a lot of my, um, like, it's just like passion is, is driven in that you know, or, or is fed by the, those experiences. So I don't know if I'd go as grandiose to say like anointed, but it feels like a gift. And I, I um, think of the work of Lewis Hyde, you know, he has that book he wrote called The Gift. And he talks about, you know, that a gift that you are not able to give and, and be received actually devours you. So that if you have these gifts inside and you have no place to offer, that it begins to um, fester inside. So I feel really fortunate that I have carved out these different spaces in which I'm able to to offer those gifts as teacher, offer those gifts as mentor, because I receive, you know, in offering that gift, it's like it's like clearing out the space to receive sort of new inspiration, new purpose, new passion. Um, and I receive as much from those opportunities, probably more than those people that I'm offering to. I'm just, um, I'm hearkening back to, and I, I haven't made it all the way through that book. I remember when you recommended that to me and, and I got, you know, a few pages in and I was really overwhelmed by the material there and told myself. It's very academic, you know, yeah. it's definitely not a light, you know, read before bed kind of thing, but. Um, but so yeah. valuable, <laughs> deeply valuable. And it's, it's on my list. Yeah. So I'm thankful that you reminded me of that as one more to add to my, my list of, of need to get to is um, for, for personal and soul enrichment. Um, and I'm just thinking of, you know, this, this idea of the gift, right, you know, and, and of, of value and worth. And you and I have had a lot of these discussions personally over the last year um, and where I very much have been kind of trapped in this story of lack, um, you know, mm-hmm. that the roles that I have chosen to step into as, as a mother, um, you know, as a healer, if I want to call myself that, as a, you know, a storyteller, all of kind of the different little hats that I have chosen, you know, like no one forced them upon me. I stepped into these willingly, but this, you know, this last year in particular, for some reason, the the narrative that I was really stuck in was this feeling of, of lack, you know, just like, 
I was believing what I was perceiving around me as this storyline of my own lack of value. You know, it's just like, you know, here you are a yoga teacher. Well, yoga teachers don't actually make any money, you know, so that just must be a cute little hobby that you do. You know, here you, you do this podcast, but like, you know, like, have you figured out a way to monetize that? Nope, you haven't. So that's just a cute little hobby. And so everything I had poured some vital piece of me into was coming back at me inside of this storyline of less than, you know, it was cute. It was this tiny little insignificant offering because the only marker that I was using during most of the course of this last year was, well, did you make any money? Um, And it was such a toxic, toxic framework to, uh, to, to compare myself against, you know, and it was, you know, it was, it was ironic at the time because, you know, even, you know, Annie <laughs> should bring me back like, well, maybe you need to be looking at these various forms of, of capital and, you know, how else is it paying you and feeding you? And um, how I just wonder, <laughs> because you are someone that never strikes me as you have a buoyancy about you. And I never sense in you when, you know, you're like, let's create a show or let's create an album or let's create this offering or this, or a play or a book or whatever it is. I never sense in you that there is this inner narrative of lack, you know, like, oh, but you know, how are we going to pay for it? Or, you know, who's going to want to do that? Or, um, you know, there's always this sense of, of possibility surrounding you and the things that you create. Um, how, how, because I'm sure that you, you know, in your own way, you, you grapple with that, right? In a society that really doesn't value the work and the things that we create as women, you know, like motherhood is not a tremendously valued thing in our culture. Art is not necessarily valued. Um, teaching is, not, <laughs> as we know, is not a, is not a comp- well compensated profession. So, so many of the things that you've chosen to step into don't reward you with the type of value that we has we've seen as um you know peak in our culture do you do you butt up against that sometime and i mean how do you how do how does that conversation look inside your own heart and mind i i mean yes absolutely you know like i i spent years contemplating those themes and writing about those themes and it came in different iterations and different waves um, based on where I was at in my life, um, you know, and, I, you know, which one of those threads to pick up, you know, I mean, probably was the strongest um, when I left a full-time teaching job where I had a salary and benefits to be a, a mother, primary caregiver full-time. And, and in that space, you know, it really, I really had to grapple with a sense of worth and value. And, you know, there was some sense of like pride and, and also a lot of privilege in the fact that I had the option, um, the financial option to do that. And that my husband is also a teacher and has a stable um, salary and health benefits, which allowed us to do that. But there have been various times when it bubbles up and and I have found that personally, like I thrive best when I can kind of walk that line in a really purposeful way. Like this year, I consciously decided to dedicate more of my time to making money. For the last nine years, I have dedicated the majority of my time to parenting and art. 
and and to shift that this year felt good and felt right and um and I'm missing I'm missing the space that I had to write and that just reaffirms for me how value that valuable that is for me and I may shift back next year to creating more space for that so part of it is definitely a very very privileged position that I'm in because I have sort of financial stability in my partnership and and support from my husband to do that um but I also think you know it is this really much bigger like you named right it's a much a bigger cultural conversation where a lot of the work that women have traditionally done historically of parenting of teaching um of, of supporting in so many different ways has been devalued in in all kinds of ways. Um, so there was a lot of internal work for me to do to just hold strong to that. And and I've been so grateful to have all of these different mentors that, that remind me that are in later stages of life, how powerful it is to um, invest your time into your family, into your children, and that that really does pay off and here it's like we're using words that have to do with finances right like we're investing time we're paying off and like it's so indoctrinated in our language and our thinking that I see that you know um and and you know because of all of those years of writing and thinking about it and contemplating I feel like when I want to do a creative adventure I'm very very clear about the value or when I choose to leave a salary job because I want to be with my my children. I'm very, very clear about the value of that. And I'm able to name that and reaffirm that. And it helps to have like, you know, my tribe of 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 writers and parents and, you know, my fellowship community as well around me to keep reaffirming and reminding me that that those things do truly have tremendous value because that's not the message that we get from mainstream culture. It's not the message that um it's definitely not the message I got growing up in in the community I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in the Midwest, you know, so it took a lot of work um, internally and and that tribe around me to to reaffirm that yes, yes, it does indeed have tremendous value. I think that's so key what you brought up too, just even the, the language that we choose. I mean, here we are, you know, writers who, you know, w- ostensibly have a little bit greater command of the English language than maybe the average human being, maybe. And still, this is the lexicon that we come back to is these words of, like you say, payoff and investment and value. And and it's true. It's so, I mean, I've been having this conversation with Sailor this week too. She was asking, you know, why there were so many old buildings by the road. And it got us into this conversation around like, well, you know, in order for buildings to get nicer and newer, someone has to be thinking that it's worthy of investment. And what's that? You know, like, well, that's where you put money or time or energy into something. And someone has to think that it's worth it. And she eventually lost interest, but it just got me thinking about, you know, just this, yeah, this area of investment, right? You know, and it's, and what the payoff is. And I just, I, you know, and that was part of the reason, you know, I was just like this, I I really want to hear what Teresa has to say on this, because I think it's so valuable. The, again, that word value, valuable, (laughs) the space you have created in your life and in your community for both personal and collective art making, because I think it's something that we haven't even begun to explore or understand 
as a culture, right? You know, the true um, value that we gain as people and as communities when we prioritize that in our in our in our day, our rhythms, our our world. Um, so, so thank you for for creating that mm-hmm. space for yourself and for for those around you, because um, I know that we all benefit. Well, I guess I just, you know, keeping in this mentorship thing, because I do think you, you speak so poignantly and beautifully from your own own lived experience and the lessons that you have um, cultivated and moved into in your own heart and practices and life. And, and I know that I have benefited from watching your journey and from seeing the devotion that you bring to, to your art and your art making and the priority you place on that. Um, but I just, you know, so what would you say to someone who is stuck in that mindset of lack, who is stuck in that, you know, that kind of blocked creative who maybe has some inkling that they, they want to bring artistry, they want to bring beauty, they want to bring that, you know, that second chakra juicy, you know, playfulness back into their world, but they're really, really stuck in this um, almost, you know, I would call it over adulting, right? You know, <laughs> where that, you know, like, but well, how is that practical or who's going to pay for it? Or, you know, like, where am I going to have time? You know, how am I going to make up for the time lost at, you know, getting a, earning a paycheck? And what do you say to that person that is, has this wall of resistance to overcome, to even begin to step into their creative selves and creative heart once more? Where, where would you invite them to pick up that thread? Hmm. Well, it's it's hard to say without knowing the individual, you know, because people find themselves in that circumstances for a whole myriad of different reasons. You know, but one of the most useful, um, I don't know, writing tools for me is that imagining yourself at the end of your life, looking back, and when you come, when your life comes to completion, like what is it that you're going to really care about? And, and that vantage point often brings people really quickly to a place of relationships. You know, people don't often usually say like, oh, I'm so glad I bought that, you know, 2,500 square foot house with that like extra acreage, you know, like that's not something people usually think about on their deathbed, right? They think about moments with people they love they might think about um, their legacy that they have given. And so the issue of value changes very quickly when we face our mortality. And in that space, I would hope that, you know, for, for many people, like the things that come up with is purpose and, and joy, right? Like there is so much work to be done in this world, right? We're very aware right now of all the injustices and and I'm so grateful that the country is having, our country is having this national conversation about racism, about gender issues, about, you know, discrimination around sexual orientation. Like all of these things are bubbling up, like social inequalities, environmental injustice, climate change is all so, so very visible. And, you know, each of us can, can be one small part in that. It's going to take many, many lifetimes, as many, many lifetimes of many generations have already invested in 
moving us to solutions and all of those threads, right? And so like each of us might have one purpose or one thread that we can offer. And if we don't find a way, I love that term, you know, that um, Adrian Marie Brown talks about as like pleasure activism. If we don't find a way to make our purpose of life also pleasurable, like as we do this really important work, to make it pleasurable, to make it joyful, to connect us to these like gifts of being human, of singing, of dancing, of appreciating beauty, then then we often aren't able to fulfill and live our purpose, right? Like because we burn out, you know, people burn out when it's just coming from a place of obligation and a nonstop go, 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 do, 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 right? And then you start to see that that attitude like circulates out into the relationships around you, you know? So I would just in, invite people to think about like what's going to be important to them at the end of their life that they have done, you know? And, and I would bet that somewhere in there, it'll be like, oh gosh, I feel so good when I go to Song Circle and sing with Maggie McKnight or I feel so incredible when I go to like drumming with Neil Boss on Sunday morning. I mean, we have so many places in our community where you can go get together and find those places of rejuvenation and nourishing to serve all those other purposes that, that, that create that sense of wholeness and fulfillment and get you unstuck, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I was, I was reading, I think it was, um, uh, something in the literature of the work that reconnects, I want to say Joanna Macy, one of, one of many of the books that she's, um, she's co-authored. Um, and she was talking about the, the work of the Bodhisattva. Um, and I guess I'll just, you, I know, Therese, you already know what this is, but I'll just go into it for, for those who are not familiar with this term. But so the Bodhisattva is, um, well, I always think of Kuan Yin, who I actually have a statue of at my, at the front of my, drive circle. So it's the first thing you see when you come to my house is this, this little statuary of Kuan Yin. And, and what I loved about her, I mean, she's known as like this, you know, the goddess of compassion. Um, and so it's a good reminder, like, okay, if you're coming into this space, then be compassionate. We're all trying our hardest here. So let that be the rule of how we engage inside this space. But um, I love that she kind of showed up in my world and chose to, um, you know, live there as the, the entryway to our, our home and our property. Um, Cause it's what I loved is this notion of the Bodhisattva and it's this, the Bodhisattva is supposed to be this kind of enlightened being, right? They've done a lot of the practices and they've, you know, burned away a lot of the egoic stuff and a lot of the debris that kind of tethers us to our individual identities. Right. And this happens sometimes over multiple lifetimes. Um, and they are choosing to use rather than kind of like levitate off into nirvana, right? And just go be, you know, an enlightened spirit being up with all the other enlightened spirit beings. The Bodhisattva chooses to stay incarnate, to stay in the physical body and be in the land of the living to be that source of of good and nourishment and compassion and beauty and bring that, that kind of nectar of the divine to the places where it's needed. And that was always, that was what really struck me about this, um, this story and this, this, this image of Kuan Yin. Um, but Joanna Macy, she writes in, um, I'm going to have to go book it back and find what actual book I'm reading. Cause I'm reading like five right now, but, <laughs> but what she talks about is that the Bodhisattva 
in their work, in moving into their calling and their work with people, it's not a form of martyrdom, right? Like you say, it's not like they're, they're giving, they're giving, they're giving to the point where they're completely depleted and burnt out. They're giving from a place of fullness. In fact, she writes that they're, the Bodhisattva is enlivened, enlivened by, by the work that they do, by their interactions, by their gifts and their offerings to their fellow human beings and to all of creation. And I just, I, I love, um, I guess it just, yeah, I want to reiterate what you're saying. Cause I feel like that's the work there, right? It's like, you don't have to give from a place of obligation. You don't have to give from a place of, um, joylessness, you know, this, it can be a beautiful, artful offering, and that can be a form of healing in the world. Um, I want to switch gears one more time, just super briefly. What are you reading and listening to right now? What is filling your cup and inspiring you? I've been mostly reading young adult literature with my children. <laughs> a lot of Harry Potter lately. Nice. And he's devouring it. And um, um, with Thomas, he's been working on his History Day project, which actually has been really, really inspiring um, to me, which we've been reading a, a book about the history of the pan um and it's quite a quite a beautiful story you know and and that's like another another gift of being really present with your your children right as they bring things i i would not have chosen to be neither of those books you know um but but they have brought that into my world and you know really like i i have been really committed to working um this year so my reading has been you know this morning i was reading about the childhood of the dalai lama for work which i'm really grateful that i have work that you know that the minister at the at the unitarian fellowship that i work with asked me um if I would do a children's story about the Dalai Lama's childhood. So I was like, great, I'd be happy to do some research and learn about that. Um, you know, so I have all these little other pieces, but really the the work that has been most inspiring to me lately is the work of the women in my writing group. And I, I have felt that way for years now, that the work that I'm most inspired by are the people that I know because I understand the context in which it was created in really deep ways. Um, there are two young men in the poetry community who, you know, recently re released albums, um, Ian and Jeremiah, you know, and I've been listening to their work and, and that really fills me up to get, get to listen to local writers and local artists um, work in, in tremendous ways. So that's what I've been enjoying the most lately. Hmm. And then I just want to know, is there anything else just that's sitting? Cause I, I, I trust your intuition and I trust your, <laughs> the, what lives in you. And I just, um, yeah. Is there anything else that just it wants to come through you and into into the, the airwaves right now that is just needing to be said? Yeah, you know, I guess, you know, with that prompt, what comes to mind is, you know, going back to that thread of value. And you had asked me earlier about, you know, that I seem to have this this sense of abundance, which which I don't always, but I, I do feel like that is something that I have cultivated over the years and I'm getting more skilled at staying in that mindset and that place. And, 
you know, just recently I have, I facilitate this monthly group in my home called Soul Matters and, and there's a spiritual practice, you know, that's offered every month with a theme and in January, um, the practice asks, you know, us to choose a particular word or phrase as sort of a mantra and, and I chose spaciousness. And I, I was really clear that there was this like longing inside of me to have more spaciousness, that I was getting really busy and full in this, these different lines of work that I've chosen this year. And it was starting to feel like I was getting thin. And and although like I love that story of the Buddhasafa and like coming back to the people and sharing your nectar and your juice and staying and incarnate, like I also like to remind myself that like I'm a human body. And my human animal body that I live in is is very um sensitive and my particular body I feel like in some ways is, is maybe fragile. Um perhaps more so than others. I don't know. This is the only body that I've lived in. But I'm very affected by the energy of, of the people around me and even just going to my son's basketball games, you know, like I it's it's cool. It's really fun. And there's so much intense energy in that gym and like people yelling and, you know, excited, sometimes aggressive, you know, like, but I come home and I can feel this like, like physical vibration in my body and recognizing that like, I need this spaciousness to clear out this energy that's not necessarily mine and to open up to, to what I can do. And so in this the practice of trying to choose spaciousness, I realize that I have to choose, right? Like I have to choose what work I'm going to do and what work I'm going to let go of right now. And, and that was really, it's really hard. And so I turned to this intuitive practice of creating a soul matter or I'm sorry, a soul collage card. And, you know, even like five years ago, I would probably be like, oh, yeah, you know, like some intuitive practice is going to bring clear answers. And, you know, but I have come to learn that, you know, when I do these practices from my own deepest lived experiences, that answers do come. And, you know, I was expecting like, oh, maybe I'd get some cool image to contemplate that, that um, you know, like my art does, you know, when I write an image or I write a passage of like, oh, what does that what does that mean? What does that look like? And, you know, and I ended up, you know, with this beautiful image of a woman on her knees and an owl flying out of her heart was sort of the main forefront image. And I was kind of like, huh, I don't really have a relationship with an owl. I haven't contemplated what that might mean or symbolize. And I've never written about owls before, contemplated them at all. But I was just so drawn to this image. And then I looked for a background and there was this gorgeous like ruins of like and it was like a doorway and you know I just like was so drawn to and I picked it and put the two together and you know and and I really clarified what question I I wanted to ask the card which was like you know what should I choose in this mist of spaciousness like which one of these projects and these opportunities and the work and you know and I'm looking at it like you know thinking there'd be some kind of symbolic thing and and when I'm all done I look at the card and like you know going back to the thread of mentorship you know Karen Harris who who taught me this practice you know she's like it's amazing you know you look at these cards when you're complete and and they speak to you and they teach you things and they tell you things and, you know, and I'm kind of laughing, like, okay, Karen says it's going to say something. And I look down, and in the upper left-hand corner, there's, like, this Arabic, like, scratched in the walls. But really clearly, it looked like it said R-E, 
And so RE in my world stands for religious education and like it's one of my jobs. And at that job, I'm in the midst of launching this class that we call OWL. It's an OWL class. It's for our whole lives, human sexuality. And I just started laughing out loud, right? That this woman on her knees has an owl flying out of her heart and it says RE and I'm like looking for some like metaphoric answer and there's like a literal answer in front of me saying like you chose this job and it's giving you an opportunity to teach young people and young parents about how to be engaged in healthy sexuality ideas around sexuality at a really young age and I was like it could not be more clear that like if I want spaciousness I should just focus on that and that's enough right now and then I could let go of all those other energies and places that were pulling me and and spreading me thin and like all of that came together for me in a really clear way because I had a wonderful mentor because I've engaged in all these creative practices and because I've done all this work to learn to trust my deepest intuition well and I just love too about the there's something I mean I think so often when we go in search of guidance right we're expecting something really exotic you know, like this, <laughs> this crazy, amazing thing from way out in left field that I couldn't even have dreamt of is going to come in. And, and I mean, that happens, right? We know that happens, but like just this, you know, bringing, you know, here you invoke this divination process to have it made clear to you, like, no, like it's right in front of you. Like if you just keep moving into this container that you've already, you know, said yes to, that you've already taken those first steps into, keep, keep dropping in. And that's, you know, your magic's right here. So I just. Well, and you know, and, and just to really like highlight the beauty of it, right. Is that part of what was tempting me was I came across in the world of the interweb, right. Like an opportunity to go um, take this class on mindfulness for leadership that, that mm-hmm. Google's developed And, you know, there was a part of me that was, it was like the shiny thing. It was like, oh, Mm. you know, like maybe I can make more money doing that. Like if I go get trained in that, like maybe I can bring that back to here and like spread out the work that I'm doing. But then I was like, no, actually my schedule is completely full and I love all the work I'm doing. I don't need more. I don't want more. I want to be spacious here with my children. I don't. I don't need more money, right? And so that temptation was, 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 was you know, out there dangling. And, and I was able to come back rooted to like, no, thank you, you know? You know, whether it's a magical divination or it was just my own subconscious being like, no, look, look, you're right where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And and don't fuck it up by go chasing some, <laughs> some ideal or surreal, you know, or some some image that you've been fed that you're going to be happier if you're making more money or you're doing this work on a larger scale. Yeah. Yeah. It's reminding me of course of a poem. Just, I I think it's Wendell Berry and he's talking about um, happening upon his wife who's asleep and maybe it's, I want to say it's Wendell Berry. Maybe it's, maybe it's Pablo Neruda. Who knows? But either way, you're making me think of poems that I love and that fill my heart. So, (laughs) and it basically just talks about, you know, sometimes you're hidden from me throughout the day and I can't see you clearly, but then, you know, the light shifts in just the right way. And then I can see you once more for who you truly are, what you truly are. And, you know, in, in that moment, you know, I'm given the gift of choosing 
again what I already what I had chosen before. Center of drums spiraled in a sacred offering where voices rise like prayers, feeding hungry hands with rhythms you set motion. I walk along the golden ratio as each sequence opens wider chambers. The spiral itself carries the wisdom of 500 million years. mother of pearl lining the intimate walls which allows the harmonics of the human voice to be heard Listen to what your hands can do so that perhaps someday my hands will know how to make love out of my simple sacred rhythm too. (laughs) 